whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And as you're doing so, I know this is a stripping of vestments, but it's St. Louis, it's summer. I think we can do the math. I'm a little overheated. Well, we're going to be tackling Genesis 18, a passage that was read earlier. You might have guessed that from the sermon title, When God Shows Up for a Cookout. This is actually the first barbecue recorded in the Bible, so I think it's rather significant. Um, This is uh, coming as the latest in a series of covenant promises and encounters that God makes with his servant Abraham. Uh, And even though this is at a very remote point from us in history, this has ties to us because in the epistle to the Galatians, Paul binds us together with Abraham that we are children of Abraham by faith in Christ. So what applies to Abraham in this passage goes for us as well. And so it does as well to look at this cookout, which I'm sure brings on a, a myriad of different memories, probably a different type for everyone in here. Perhaps uh, if you think about a cookout, uh, if, you, if you tend to do more uh, of the smoking of, say, a Boston butt variety or whatever it might be, some labor-intensive work and making sure the temperature doesn't get too high, keeping the water bin filled, uh, maybe family reunions and, and and you think about, oh, there are some people in my family I really want to see, and then there are some other people in the extended family I'd rather avoid, and these can be filled with angst. Or um, for me, it's a lot more positive because Christy and I met at a cookout given by mutual friends, and so uh, that's when our relationship began. Uh, so we, we have different uh, takes on cookouts, but uh, the one before us is what is really important because God arrives. Here it says the Lord appeared to him. And as we look at Scripture, as, as we take Scripture into ourselves, uh, one of the key questions that we can bring to the text is what does this reveal to us? about God, about Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. See, if God is front and center in this ancient barbecue, uh, we need to discern what God is doing and also how we might be more faithful followers of the Lord as a result of that. Uh, and uh, to, to help us along in this, um, we, we, uh, we are helped by the bookends of this passage. Uh, in verse 1, we see that the Lord appeared to his servant, Abraham. Uh, In verse 14, we get uh, the form of a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And and so we're going to encounter the Lord in two very profoundly distinct but important ways. And the first uh, sense, we encounter the, the God who befriends us in the first eight verses. Uh, It says the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre. So they're located about 15 miles south of modern day Jerusalem. It's the hottest part of the day. All of a sudden, Abraham looks out and there are three men right there. Uh, And and notice his reaction. We we don't want to dwell too much on that. uh, But but he he sees them. And when he saw them, verse 2, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed low, bowed himself to the earth, and he addresses 
uh, the, the one in, in the middle at least, as, oh Lord. So, so here, there's something instinctive about Abraham where he notices these men are greater than he is. Um, whether, now, did he know that this was God himself? Did, may he have thought it was a Bedouin chieftain who outranked him? Who knows? Uh, but, but, there, but I think as the passage goes along, he slowly becomes more aware of who this is uh, before him. Uh, so he, he says, don't pass by, don't go on one step farther, uh, let a little water be brought, wash your feet, let's put something before you, uh, have a nibble, uh, and then you can go on your way. <laughs> now this was... Uh, you, you can imagine maybe a little titter of nerves in Abraham's voice if these are people who outrank him and they've decided to come by. This is, uh, this is very important uh, to him. Imagine if you would, if you heard a knock on your door one day and when you opened it, Queen Elizabeth was there saying, well, you know, our entourage was just going through the St. Louis area. We, we, we blew a tire. Uh, of course, they would, they would spell tire with a Y instead of an eye, but say, can, can we possibly uh, trouble you just to come in? And so, you know, you would want to put some food before them, and that's where I would be thinking, it's a good thing I know how to make scones, and my wife knows how to make Devonshire cream. Uh, so, um, you know, that it, it would be kind of like that for us. But this isn't just a quick bite for any traveler. Uh, in the ancient Near East, your usual diet was made up of grains and beans. That was your normal nosh. And the fact that Abraham sets in motion a grand feast means he's becoming aware of what's going on here. So, And, and look at the amount of food. Uh, he goes to Sarah. He says, quick, three sayas of fine flour. Not grainy, rough stuff. The best ultra-sifted stuff to make the best unleavened uh, bread, which he would ma- uh, mix up the dough and bake it on hot stones. Uh, he takes a, a calf from the flock, whether it's a lamb, probably a goat, uh, and uh, it was uh, prepared quickly. Uh, and then he took curds and milk. Uh, he, he, he makes cheese. So, so notice what we've got here. We've got bread. We've got meat. We've got cheese. If you wanted biblical justification for, for cheeseburgers, it's right here in Genesis 18. Apologies to any vegans. Uh, so he brings it and he stands by them like a waiter. And we almost get the sense of the passage slowing down and the visitors are sitting and eating like there's no hurry. Now we could focus right now on looking back at Abraham's frantic activity to honor his guests and draw from that to that we must honor the Lord. But I think this passage, uh, if we're looking at, at Scripture redemptively, is calling us and begging us to, to look at this beyond just m- more than a be like Abraham and do what Abraham does motif. Because we get the we, we get the focus of this uh, initial part of the passage back in verse one, the Lord appeared to him. See, there's all this detail going on in terms of Abraham's response, but we need to see what brought on that response. It's an encounter of God drawing near. So let's not forget that. Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse back in the day told a story of, of a um, owner of an ice house 
who lost a very nice watch, uh, got buried in the sawdust in the ice house. And, uh, and so he and several other workers went through there, combed through the sawdust, could not find the watch at all. So giving up for a while, they took a lunch break, and while they were eating their lunch, a boy who worked uh, in, the, in the factory or whatever went into the ice house and two minutes later emerged with the watch. And they wondered, how did you do that? How did you pull that off? And he said, well, I just went in, sat down quietly, and listened for the ticking. <laughs> and there it was. See, we need to slow down. And listen to the ticking of the text here, that this is brought on by the Lord coming near, enjoying this meal. He's come to see his friend Abraham. Uh, And as what goes for Abraham goes for us, this is the same God for us as well. The Lord is the one who draws near to you. It's as if he's telling Abraham and us, you you know, uh, I could take the many galaxies that you sleep under every night. I could snag them in my fingertip and I can put them in my pocket, but I'm the same God who draws near to you and befriends you. I am with you. I am alongside you. I am for you. And just like with Abraham, we, we are in the midst of ordinary, covenantal, daily living. And we have the same God. We should take great encouragement from this, that, that we have a God who draws near to us simply because he is determined to do so. Now, this could mean several things. Um, <laughs> Perhaps uh, some of us need to have a, a, a new alignment in terms of our view of who God is. Some of us maybe have grown up thinking that God is very exacting and stern. And, and so this passage sort of breaks uh, that, 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 uh, that impression of God. But uh, maybe we may think that because of our sin, because of our fallenness, that God somehow needs to be cajoled to come near. But here we see that God takes the initiative, as he does all the time. You serve a God who wants to pursue you, who, as Ephesians 1 would say, uh, in his great love, God is excited about drawing near to you. Is that the, what, Would your life change dramatically if you took on that understanding of God and made that your own daily? I think it would. Um, Also, um, as we're going to get into more detail uh, in the second half of the passage, uh, that uh, Abraham is still working uh, with the fact that God's promises have not totally come to fruition, especially this issue that he and Sarah are still childless. Uh, And and so he doesn't understand why all this is going on. And and perhaps we don't have a number of answers for some of the pressing questions in our lives. But what God points out is you may not have the answers to the questions you have in the time that you employ them. But you always have me. Is that enough to have me, even if you don't have the answers to what life throws at you? And also, I would venture that our prayer life could be transformed, that God is not just the God of the galaxies and the many universes and out there, but he draws near. 
that the specifics of our lives on site are important to him. So yes, um, what is going on globally, we pray for those matters uh, in uh, every service here as we join together in worship. And yet your individual details matter to God. Your surgeries and the recovery from them. Uh, the, the things that afflict you and others. God draws near and is on sight because we have a God who befriends us. Now, um, if we were interposing, uh, because as I, especially when I read the Old Testament, I think, what if we put this to a movie? And then I start thinking questions about soundtrack. What does a soundtrack become like? And, and as we go into verse 9, I sense the music turning kind of ominous, almost threatening, and you just know, oh, something sad is going to go on now. Um, we, and this is where uh, we, we see a different side of the coin, and we encounter a God who baffles us, which is incredibly strange to think about that a God who befriends us could confuse us as well. We have this hinge moment uh, where they ask, uh, where is Sarah? Uh, and Abraham, Abraham, speaking for the last time in this particular passage, says she is in the tent. Um, and then God says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, a couple things here. Uh, it's easy to get onto Abraham and Sarah and say, well, you just got to hang on and, and believe. But I think that's somewhat conditioned by the fact that a number of us might be familiar with the Abraham story, and some of us may know how it ends up, where a little tyke named Isaac comes along later, miraculously, and all of a sudden everything seems better. But at this point, we have the reader's edge. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are just trying to get to the next day, uh, and, and they're, they're probably, when they hear this, um, it, it says Sarah laughs. Um, and we, we may think it's, it's rude to laugh at God, but consider what they've been through. Uh, in Genesis 12, 7, uh, Abraham and Sarah arrive. They've, they've gone from their, their former uh, domicile into the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel. And God appears and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. He says, I will give you protection. I will make your name great. Uh, all people of the earth will be blessed. You're going to have this territory. Uh, only problem is that territory is called Canaan for a reason. The Canaanites own it. Abraham doesn't. And he says, I'm going to give this to your offspring. Problem is, Abraham at that time is around 75. Sarah's 65. It's not looking good. Um. So he's saying to your offspring, to your, to your kids, which you don't have, I'm going to give this land, which is in the hands of others. And Abraham and Sarah have got to be looking, what? Uh, Genesis 15, 2, the word of the Lord appears in a vision to Abraham and says, walk before me and be blameless. And Abraham basically says, what is the point as long as I continue childless? And then in Genesis 17, verse 17, after God has said, uh, you're going to have a son, here's what you're going to do in the covenant of circumcision when he is eight days old. Uh, and Abraham laughs. He says, Lord, you are crackers. Uh, that's basically the, the uh, Davis extemporaneous version of the Bible. Um, but uh, notice what's going on. The promise has been given. 
It has been re-given, but fulfillment of God's promise has been delayed for almost a quarter century. Imagine God telling you something's going to happen and you've got to wait 24, 25 years for that. Wouldn't your faith grow dim? Uh, And it's even worse. Verse 11, uh, Abraham and Sarah were old, 99 and 89 at this point, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She had already gone through menopause. This was impossible. Having a child wasn't even on her radar. Naturally, it was a done deal. So, when she, no wonder she laughed. I, I used to be upset with Sarah when I was younger reading this passage. I, I, I really, there, there's, I, I, I don't go after her like I used to. Because I, I, the, the question came out, what really, if I'm sitting in her shoes, is God up to? Doesn't that baffle you? Doesn't that outrage you at a, at a certain, you know, uh, level? I, I realize that life as a follower of Jesus can be difficult. It is not all cake and ice cream. This this cuts deeper. This this is not just a flippant bunch of words. This is like a, a knife going into a wound that keeps opening up again and again and again. Uh, there's that part in our service uh, in, um, where, we, where we read uh, the comfortable words, which Thomas Cranmer placed in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, and sequentially, and, and also there's a logic to why this is first, uh, we begin with Matthew 11.28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Those can be very, very comforting, strengthening words. They can also be incredibly disturbing words. Because what about when it seems like the burdening confusion is coming from God himself? What happens when we take in God's biblical promises and they only cause us to scrunch up our face? Uh, Because, you you know, we can know the Bible forward and backward. You can have a sincere desire to abide and grow in Jesus Christ. And you may say that you you can't remember a day you spent outside of the Christian faith as a follower of Jesus, and you, you still might not have a shred of a clue about what God is doing in a particular circumstance or series of circumstances. And His promises just end up confusing you. Take Philippians 4.19, for example, where Paul says, My God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. And you may ask, well, then why am I struggling With finances, why is it so difficult for me to find solid, ongoing employment? Or a few verses before that where Paul says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And some of us may say, Then why am I constantly filled with an anxiety that shackles me? Why am I plagued with clinical depression? Those are legitimate questions questions to ask. Or what about Psalm 16, verse 11? You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures evermore. Then why am I or those that I care about plagued 
by physical infirmities and pain. Why did my husband die? Why did my wife die? Why did my loved one die? Why did my child die? And why is it so hard to shake that sorrow? And I get it. There are situational qualifications and there are a number of issues in our lives that are self-inflicted. No one's going to deny that. But we need to also be refreshingly honest and I think admit that our lives as covenant people can get turned upside down and shaken out at times that we don't know what God is up to. Now here's the good news. The text takes us there, but, but uh, it doesn't leave us there, nor does Genesis 18 invite us to sling darts at God or shake our fist in his face and say, you don't know what I've been through. I think the cross of Jesus Christ shows that he knows what we've been through. Um, but we hear a question. I think this is incredible. So much during the Bible, when people ask questions, uh, God or Jesus, especially in his ministry, responds with questions over and over again. But it's this, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's as if God is saying, I, we, we've, uh, you know, sometimes we have to realize God's not in the clouds and he's here with us. But sometimes him being imminent, being with us and alongside of us brings its own issues. We forget about his majesty and we have to keep those things in balance. So it's as if God is saying, I know you see me here, Sarah, Abraham, everybody else entertaining this passage. You see me here sharing a cookout with you on side, but remember who I am. In all of my fullness, I'm the God who has created the universe out of nothing. I am the God, think about this, Abraham, Sarah, everybody. I'm the God who has shifted from my heavenly throne to sitting under this tree chomping on a goat burger. So if I can make that exchange, then could you at least trust me in what seems to be a situation outside of your reach. God is not calling his people necessarily to understand or dissect him, but God wants us to trust him. Because the one who creates the universe can act against impossible odds. Uh, the Lord who befriends us is also a God who can make a way in the confusion. And I knew that doesn't make our experiences less challenging, but we can at least acknowledge I think happily that the God who establishes and permits our circumstances can also make a way through them even when they seem incredibly daunting because he is the one who has set up this whole world in which we live and arranges its functions. There was a time, um, this is number of years ago, uh, 1982, I was coming up on 12 years of age. My younger brother, Seth, was 10. And we had a youngest brother who was six years old named Joel. And um, in brotherly fashion, Seth and I sort of took it upon ourselves to sort of mold Joel's early athletic endeavors. Uh, and I'd like to say we, we did fairly well because when he was in high school, he got scouted by the Milwaukee Brewers uh, back, back when they were in the basement of the National League. Uh, but who's counting? Um, but uh, 
we, 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 we really had him practice uh, baseball and fielding and batting, and we also made sure he understood the rules of the game. Well, at six years of age, you don't have too many regular baseball opportunities, so my parents signed uh, Joel up uh, at the y- or what local YMCA in Mississippi for T-ball. Now, now T-ball is a strange sport. I get it's, it's like another universe. Um, and uh, you, we, you have to remember that in T-ball, the, the, the normal leagues where that I've encountered this, um, each side, uh, each team in each half of their inning up at bat, everybody on the team bats. So if you have 14 people on each team and the first three get out, uh, well, you keep batting until everyone's had a turn and you just tally up however many runs they have. And you work that way. That's the way T-ball functions. Well, Joel's team, uh, which was on an undefeated streak, was out in the field. And while most of the kids were worried about what they were drawing in the dirt, Joel was ready to go uh, and acting very professional uh, at a shortstop position. The other team loaded the bases, runners on first, second, and third. The next batter made contact with the ball off the tee and hit a line drive. And as soon as that ball went off the tee, all the runners started going. They weren't counting on Joel snaring that line drive out of the air for the first out. And then Joel turns around and sees everybody is off the base. Every, no one has tagged up. They're mine. <laughs> and he goes in reverse fashion around the field. He's already snared the first out. Goes to the runner going from third to home. Tags him out for the second out. The one going from second to third, he runs him down and tags him out third out, and then he sees the clueless runner off first base standing, wondering what the hubbub is, and he runs over and tags that runner. Not a double play. Not a triple play. But, and I think, I can't verify this, but this has to be so unique, it it must be the only time in human history, an unassisted quadruple play. And that blows our minds. We think that can't happen. An unassisted quadruple play, that just doesn't occur. And I agree with you, but it did. Okay, I, I was there and I saw it happen because the rules of T-ball are set up where that is at least possible. And, and a woman who is an 89-year-old woman who has gone through menopause might think there's no way I can conceive. And God says, you forget who set up the universe to run and who can intervene in people's circumstances. See, within the confusion, there is this tenacity of God to be faithful to his people and to allow nothing to stop him because his friendly and gracious heart as he draws near is married to his overwhelming sovereign power in a perfect fit. And that won't solve all of your problems, but that is a slab of concrete at the bottom of your life, knowing that you serve a God who can never be thwarted. Do you realize how encouraging that is? It doesn't mean that you won't go through difficulties. Isaiah 43 tells us, you know, you're going to go through the deep waters. You are going to go through the fire, but the waves will not overwhelm you. You will not be burned because I, God, will be with you. Now, we may conclude it's very nice that God did that for Abraham. And we have to realize 
He has done the impossible for us as well on this side of biblical history. Sometimes that's not easy to see. We have to look around and expand our uh, perspective a little bit. Um, kind of like that situation in uh, 2002 where we were living in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I forget what circumstance brought me out into the uh, the family room in our apartment there, but um, I noticed that the TV was on and the channels were changing every one or two seconds. And I didn't have the remote control in my hands. Nobody else did. Uh, and it's just going haywire. I, I thought I, you know, it was a, like a Twilight Zone episode that I was living in. And in spite of my r- rather um, unflinching Protestantism, I was, a, I was that close to calling St. Thomas Aquinas Church and having a priest come over to do an exorcism on, on, on the TV set. Um, and then, you know, because I was so focused on the TV set, then I noticed a little movement off to the side. And it's, it's Lindsay. At that point, she was one year old. So you have to imagine Lindsay at one year old. And, and I know she's just sort of like swaying back and forth, rocking a little bit on, on the floor. And so I pick her up, and there under her diapered rear end was the remote control. And so her waggling back and forth was changing it all the time. I just needed to see there, there was something else beyond my immediate attention. And so if we pull ourselves away from the immediate attention of uh, Genesis 18, uh, we may think of another impossible story uh, in Luke chapter 1, where the archangel Gabriel uh, pops in on the residence of the Virgin Mary. Funny how these things come up because people just pop by uh, for for a visit. Abraham and now the Virgin Mary. Uh, But uh, basically Gabriel says, hey, uh, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. That's sort of a condensed version of it. And uh, and he kind of goes into a great deal of detail. And Mary says, how can this be? Because, see, she's not old and postmenopausal like Sarah She's a virgin, okay? So equally impossible just on the other end of the spectrum. She she says, I don't see how this is going to happen. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he ends up, he sums everything up with these words, which... In Genesis 18, it was in the form of a question. Now Gabriel makes a statement, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, the God who provides a Savior for you in staggering ways continues to provide for you and me as His children. Is He friendly and gracious? Yes and amen. Can He be confusing and staggering? Absolutely. But the good news is those come together in the fact that the Lord of the impossible has drawn near to you and he will not let you go. Let us pray. Our loving Lord who marries a friendly heart with sustaining power and who gives hope in the deepest darkness, cause us to trust that you smile warmly upon us in the midst of our trials. And may we follow you, our shepherd Jesus, knowing that in all hardship, You hold us tightly in the grip of your cross-bearing hands. This we pray in your name, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen.